As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan. Hiya. And from The Athletic is Phil Hay. Hello. And The Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. Christmas is coming. Are you all set? We are, although you'd be better off asking my wife than me. She tends to have these things in order. But from what I'm told, the messages in dispatches, yeah, pretty much sorted. How does she feel about the athletic sub that you will be gifting her, Phil? Delighted. Um, same as the rest of the family. I think I was saying last week that um, what else would I be buying for people? <laughs> Surprise. This year? Yeah, you'd never have guessed. You can do the same, by the way. If you subscribe to The Athletic, you can give another subscription as a gift for free. You get all the great analysis, all the features that Phil's done, and what can we look forward to this week? Um, we've got a big read at the end of the week on the Leeds Man United rivalry, which is obviously kicking back in um, as we get towards Sunday. Reflections on Newcastle as well, and particularly some of the, the punditry around that game. Um, and also a piece on Erling Haaland, who is my nomination for our um, Ballon d'Or shortlist. There isn't a Ballon d'Or this year, but we produced a shortlist anyway, and I wrote about him. You can enjoy all the podcasts that The Athletic do ad-free, plus all the great writing on the website, the ideal gift for yourself and somebody else. So if you want to get involved with that, go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up. A week of contrasts. I'm glad that last night happened. We're recording this on, um, on Thursday lunchtime. It all got a little bit bleak and worrisome off the back of West Ham. And yet here we are. Just a few days later, after thrashing Newcastle and the world seems all right. First question I should ask you, Phil, is how are the in-laws? Because they're from that part of the world. The in-laws are apparently great, although I'll be up there trolling them uh, next week when we get up on, on Christmas Eve. I don't think they'll be complaining about last night any more than anybody else in Newcastle. They were pretty soundly beaten. And I, I thought even though Steve Bruce was saying that Newcastle were, were in the game and in his words, given as good as they got until the last 12 minutes. I have to be honest, I thought it was always going Leeds way last night, provided there weren't too many concessions from set pieces. He said they went toe-to-toe with us, didn't he? I think, was that the phrase? I think so, yeah. I, it didn't feel like that at, at any stage at all. It, it felt as if they scored from one of the two chances that came in the space of a minute in the first half and then got a, a typically sort of cheap goal from a corner right after that terrific second Leeds goal. And... It was in the balance at that point and there was that little worry in your head about whether Leeds had shot themselves in the foot again and whether they were going to get mugged towards the end of a game that they, they should have won and, and definitely had to win given how you know how well they'd played for most of it. 
but I think toe-to-toe is pretty generous for how Newcastle played last night. And and as you saw towards the end, they were flagging and pushing for, for a, a third equaliser or an equaliser at 3-2. There was nothing they could do about Leeds breaking at pace, and and you know those are the points at which Leeds are, are so strong and 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 so good at finishing teams off. Bruce reminded me a little bit of when Warnock used to do his post match interviews after we'd have been beaten quite soundly, and he'd say we were in the game and a couple of things went against us. But actually, you'd have to say on the balance of play, it was five two flat to them. If anything, they didn't deserve the two goals. Is what I the, would be my judgment on it, rather than they were in it and had a chance. I thought they were one of the most ineffectual teams we've faced this season. There wasn't much coming from them at all. Joe Linton reminded me of Haller for West Ham. West Ham performed better than Newcastle, although I think they're quite a limited team as well. And and I have to say, I did see Haller's overhead kick on the night against Palace and, and there's no knocking that at all. But I think they both fell into the category of players that you can't understand for a minute why it was that so much money was spent on them. Joe Linton didn't seem to offer anything up front and that kind of negated Wilson, who is a very good player and, and can be very dangerous, but didn't really have much of a chance to to get at Bielsa's defence. I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't think, you, you sort of mentioned on the podcast notes, you know, even their own fans think they're awful. I don't think they're awful. I just don't think they're very good. They're kind of somewhere in the middle of being very, very bang average with no real structure, no defined style. I, I don't know what they are. I don't know what Bruce thinks they're supposed to be. But I feel a little bit sorry for him and the criticism he takes because I, I feel as if Newcastle are just constantly floating and drifting and, and going nowhere. But I can understand why people are totally uninspired by him as manager, not because he isn't a, a good manager at what he does, but because if you compare Leeds and Newcastle, you, you have one team who have got this project in, in motion uh, and have got this this definite tactical you know tactical plan that, that pays off so often. And then you've got another in Newcastle who do feel a little bit more like a collection of 11 players who just muddle through. Well, we spoke to Angus Kinnear across the last six, seven months, a couple of times on the Square Ball podcast. And in our meetings with him, Michael, you'll remember that we had a chat off air. I don't think Angus would mind us saying this and repeating this, but one of the themes we touched on was about how it feels to be a Leeds fan. And and one of the things we settled on and we kind of agreed on was that football fans don't necessarily want success. We all strive for success. We all hope that trophies will one day arrive. But I think we all accept, don't we, that there are a limited number of promotion places. There are a limited number of European places. There's only one Premier League trophy slot. So what you actually want more than anything is is something to believe in and a little bit of hope. And in Newcastle, I see a club that's devoid of that. I, d- I just don't think there's anything there for them to get behind. And, you know, they don't like the ownership. I don't think they particularly like Steve Bruce. And it goes back to a text exchange I had with a mate up there who's a Newcastle fan last night and he said he's, I put that to him and he said it's exactly right we've got nothing to get behind and something that's fun like there's a certain joy to the way we play admittedly maybe not against West Ham but we might finish 15th this year and we might not win a cup but we can probably get back to the end well we will get to the end of the season and look back at this game and the Villa game and the way we open the season at Anfield and there's been some there's been some fun had along the way I, you don't get the sense with Newcastle if fans are in stadiums, anyone will be leaving their games buzzing about it and still thinking about it when they go to bed in a positive way anyway. There'd be, if anything, you'd be just thinking, yeah, why is there not more here? There should be more of, from coming out of this collective effort than there is. It just feels like, as Phil said, you could be putting any any 11 men, any manager would be getting more or less the same thing from them. But it comes from the top, doesn't it? And you're talking about fun and, and entertainment and something to believe in and to hope for and, and to dream in. I, I, is Mike Ashley being that, sick in a that, fireplace not entertaining? Well, that doesn't seem to be part of Ashley's psyche, does it? You know, he, he doesn't come across as a guy who is 
Oh yeah, Sport Direct mug on the table. Well, Look I've, at that. I yeah. brought that. We got that as a free gift when we bought some of the ki- uh, the kids' Christmas presents. The big giant Sports Direct mug. You're going to start defending them now, aren't you? No, I'm not. I, I and we got it when we ordered a, pair, a couple of pairs of trainers as a free gift, and I brought it in last night into our studio when we watched the game to reverse jinx it, and it seemed to work. So excellent. I think that's now got excellent. to stay there for the January game. But yeah, dreaming in football. I don't think that is. I don't think that is Mike Ashley at all. And I think by going for Bruce, and again, I don't want to be too critical of Bruce, but I think it just falls into that bland category of, of a club with no real direction and, and no real aspirations. That's the difference at Leeds at the moment. And it's been the difference for the past two seasons is that they're aspiring to so much. And the, the chats that you had with Kinnear about the redevelopment of the stadium, they're desperate for it all to happen overnight as well. I think they know it can't, but they would love to click their fingers and have 60,000 capacity they'd love to click the fingers and have the, the training ground built um, in Holbeck the, the new training ground and, and I think there's a realistic chance of a lot of it happening and it, and it just it feels as if at the moment there's a regime both senior management and, and also coaching staff who think that Leeds can be an awful lot more than they are at the moment you contrast that to Newcastle where it feels as if the, the hierarchy there are just happy to be where they're at and actually none of it really brings much joy at all but it'll do because in the Premier League it, it, you pull in a lot of money and you can turn over quite nicely um, but unfortunately on, on the flip side you then have supporters in the background who can't stand that who don't derive any any pleasure from it at all you know without speaking for them I would imagine that supporters up in Newcastle probably do look at Leeds and feel quite envious about the way things are going down here. Well, this is a Leeds podcast and not a Newcastle one, so let's talk about Leeds. And one of the things I enjoyed about last night was that it directly addressed a lot of the things that we felt had kind of gone off the boil a little bit, like Oli Alioski's not being great across the last few games and his decision-making's not being great. And last night, he obviously scores that goal and enjoyed it a great deal. Harrison had gone off the boil a little bit. We, We flagged that up in recent weeks and he got right back on it last night. Even if his crossing's not always working out, it's the fact that he's making the crosses, getting into the positions... And then every now and then, one of those crosses pops up like it did for that header by Rodrigo, which was a sensational goal. I, I was trying to make the point after the West Ham game that you are talking essentially about a squad still who have all come up from the Championship and, and very few of them have played in, in the Premier League before. And even in the case of somebody like Hernandez, it's it's years since he was at this level and he's now 35. So there's the question of how he's, he's going to cope. So you are going to have peaks and troughs. And I think that's true of Bielsa. We've, I think the three of us have always been in the mindset that when Leeds impressed this season they're going to be very good and they're going to be very watchable but when they lose it probably isn't going to be pretty and the scoreline could be um, fairly unflattering and that was the case you know against Palace and against Leicester and and it didn't look great against West Ham but I think one of the big problems against West Ham was that the game never opened up they were very disciplined with their shape they had a two-man midfield in front of the back four it didn't give a lot of space for Leeds to to work in and in those circumstances you're then looking for Leeds to be ultra clinical and precise with the good positions they get and uh, the good possession that they get as well. And that's not always a strength on the Bielsa. You know, you can go through games where there are a lot of opportunities to cross and, and it comes to nothing. When what you're kind of crying out for is Harrison to do what he did for Rodrigo's um, goal last night, which is to to lay it on a plate and equally click doing the same for, for Dallas um, for goal three. And, and the thing that I noticed yesterday as the game went on was that it did open up. You did start to get space. And when you do get space and when you do get room to play in and when Leeds have opportunities to counter-attack as they did for the, the last two goals, they are so dangerous. Um, and that's when they come almost become almost impossible to contain. What is the difference when we are able to play well and not? Because it seems, we saw this last season and against Chelsea and people like that, it feels excusable because they've got a lot of talent there. But when 
when we saw us last year not turning up against people like Sheffield Wednesday and QPR and Forest, they, they are not good sides, but we still had games where we just didn't seem at it. I, cause I was just going to say, I don't necessarily agree that we didn't turn up against Sheffield Wednesday. I think we did, but they set out to nullify us, didn't they, in that way that Gary Monk's side did, always did against us. Because uh, we played okay in that. I was more thinking of the away game, actually. Yeah, the, home, yeah. the home game, we were we probably did just about shade the overall play, but it never, it never really happened for us I, in... I think that's the simple explanation, though. There are days where it just doesn't work. And, and as varied and, and as interesting as Bielsa's style is, there are patterns to it. So they play out wide a lot and they look to what the wings. And if it isn't working out there and if the passing isn't precise enough or if it isn't sharp enough, it becomes very difficult to open defences up. If the box is packed, you'll see an awful lot that there are crosses that go into the area and you're looking for Bamford or sometimes Click when, when he goes beyond the last man to win a header in amongst the defence with five or six players around them and the odds are not particularly high, the, the percentages are, are pretty low and it does need the sort of killer ball and the killer run like Harrison to Rodrigo last night which the conversion of it was an, an absolute peach of a finish. The, the ball from Rodrigo initially was actually not great and it was it was really good work by Harrison to to keep it in and, and to swing it, you know, swing it back into the box but then you had the anticipation from Rodrigo and because of the sharpness of that it's almost impossible for a defence to, to read it I think there was a big difference between Chelsea and West Ham, which was that Chelsea outplayed Leeds and almost outplayed them at their own game. They, they played high up the field. They worked their way through the press. They were very slick. And because, as Bielsa said, the physical performance ratcheted up quite dramatically, they, they were able to make the most of the talent in their squad, which is undoubtedly superior to the, the talent in Leeds. Against West Ham, I didn't feel for an hour. I, I did the, the piece after West Ham on... Phillips against Declan Rice and I didn't feel for an hour that either of them really got into it properly or or properly dominated but then in the last half hour West Ham came on strong Rice started to to have more influence his class started to tell and he he dictated a little bit more but I don't think that was a case West Ham were the better team on the night but I don't think you came away thinking West Ham were a better team it just felt as if there was a lot about the evening that, that didn't work but I have to say I'm sure we'll come on to this I never felt it was about fatigue or tiredness. I never felt it was about tiredness of thought or tiredness of, of body. I, I felt like I, I often do with Bielsa, that it was just one of those occasions where it didn't click. And sometimes it doesn't because it is a very... I mean, I know we kind of we laid into Scott Scotty Parker about him saying that Leeds had predictable patterns of play or whatever the exact phrase was last season. But it is true, they are drilled to almost a military level. So if you stop us executing those patterns of play, then you are going to nullify us. On the sort of predictable patterns of play, what do you think Rafinha has done there? Because he feels like he's playing that role in a very different way to Harrison and Costa at the moment. He He's central an awful lot. He seems to be getting in the box. Absolutely. And and just looking for killer passes and not just crosses, but he looks for crossfield balls and little threaded balls. And he seems to have completely transformed the way we play in a lot of ways. His, um, his touch and his decision-making is absolutely outstanding. I mean, again, last night I was looking at him and I've got a lot of time for Rodrigo, but at, at £30 million nigh on, you would hope that Rodrigo would be a, an absolute star. I was looking at Rafinha again last night and just thinking £17 million for him could be such a such a steal longer term. He reminds me more of the way that Hernandez played in the first season as a right-sided midfielder, which was that there is width there if you need it and, and he can play out wide, but he does drift a lot more and he does roam and he does cause more of a problem because he, he will come inside, he will take up areas. I, I did a big piece on him after the Arsenal game and 
it was really apparent in that that he didn't want to hug the touchline in the way that, say, Harrison does on, on the left-hand side. And that's not a criticism of Harrison because that is his game. You know, he is a very, very wide winger or a wide midfielder. Whereas with Rafinha, there does seem to be more variation there. And he already, it just seems to me that he, he is very, very good at picking the right passes and at reading the game and, and knowing what to do. And I think he is at a level above Harrison. I think he's at a level above Costa. I would suspect at the moment playing on the right, he's probably at a level above Hernandez because it's been a long time since Hernandez has, has been employed there, although it was good to see him back. And, and obviously he was he was back to his old tricks against Newcastle as well was was Hernandez. But yeah, I, I think it's it's a good point to flag him up because he is making making a difference. And I, I think if, if what we're seeing at the moment is a demonstration of what we're going to get from him, you know, longer term, he's going to be a regular at Leeds for a long time. It feels like he's going to probably contribute the goals we need from a wide area as well, because that has been one thing that it's always felt like in, during Bielsa's time that Costa and Harrison need to be getting 10, 12 goals a season. And Rafinha, he didn't score last night, but he did everything but. And, he, and he's clearly, I quite enjoy the fact that he's clearly really annoyed that he hasn't scored. The other thing with him is that if you're preparing for him and if you're doing opposition analysis, you're probably warning your fullback that he's got a lot of pace and you've got to be careful of him getting out wide and, and getting past you and, and getting to the byline. Whereas in actual fact, if you concentrate too much on that, what you find is that he understands where his, his opposition player is and starts taking up the space that they aren't occupying. I've been really, really impressed by him. And I think of all the new signings so far, he's probably the one that interests me most. I think that's an indicator of, of what that next level up of player is. It's that speed of thought. It's that decision making. It's that sense of positioning, isn't it? You, I think you sometimes think we'll, we'll get in the Premier League and suddenly we'll see these world-class players all signed and they're going to look vastly different from what we've already got. But it's not. It's just about those incremental gains and that slight quickness of thought. And, and, and I don't want to hammer Costa, but he's been pretty ineffectual when we've seen him, the limited number of times we've seen him in recent weeks. And you, you contrast him with Rafinha and it's it's like night and day, isn't it? You see the decision-making, the determination, the focus, the the directness that, that Rafinha has. And I always want Costa. And I think Victor Orta's hinted at this, actually, when he's spoken about him in, in recent times saying, they want more from him. They need to get him back up to a level where Rafinha just seems to know exactly what he's doing every time. Costa, I'm never quite sure about. Comes and goes with Costa. I I wrote about him halfway through his first season and I said, there are things to like about him, but you, you just don't feel that explosion yet. And I still don't feel like we have. He's had games where he's been very good, where he's made a, a difference, where he, he has looked, looked promising. But then you get the, the kind of sag that comes again where you're not quite sure and you find yourself wondering whether... £50 million for him is is going to prove good value. He was extremely ineffective against West Ham and Bielsa never throws anybody under the bus and Bielsa never never goes to great lengths to explain why he leaves players out of a squad when they're not injured. But again, you know, a bit like Hernandez at Palace, he, he was very honest last night in saying, bottom line is, Costa was available. You know, he was fit. I could have had him in the squad, but I didn't. And he didn't go any further than that and he didn't say why not. But, um, you know, the, the decision to bring in Leif Davis Perhaps it was a reflection of the fact that, you know, down the left, Leeds hadn't been looking particularly strong. Perhaps it was Bielsa thinking that he, he needed to make sure he had an option there. But I find it hard to imagine that even with that in his head, if Costa had been ticking over nicely, that he wouldn't have been in the 18 last night. It did feel a little bit as if Bielsa was starting to think, I'm not sure about this. And he's saying to him, right, you've been left out. Now it's your job to get back into this team, I guess. Very much so, like Hernandez. So, you know, the the question since Hernandez was dropped has been, what is his relationship like with Bielsa? Has this all been smoothed over? Is he going to be back in the squad at, at the first opportunity? Is Bielsa going to use him? Um, to which, you know, we, we've discovered, yes, he is. And, and he was back on the pitch last night. 
two assists. I think that I, I, it always makes me laugh with some assists. The, the second one um, was a lovely pass out to Harrison, but it's quite it's stretching it somewhat to say that that kind of created Harrison's goal, given that he he ran twenty five yards and then banged it in from from thirty. But you know, again, just when Rafinha set him up for the fourth goal, which was crucial because that just killed it completely. You know, there was no possibility after that of of Newcastle forcing a late corner and, and nicking a point at the death. It was just Hernandez looking up, doing the right thing, seeing three players there, feeding it across gently so Alioski could could smash it in. So already you're you're thinking with Hernandez, he's kind of back in the fold, and you know that that hopefully is has smoothed itself over. And yeah, I think you're right with Costa. He he kind of needs to do the same. It's just going to be that little bit more difficult because he he doesn't have the same level of magic that Hernandez does. He he doesn't tend to do things out of nothing in the way that that Hernandez has for for two and a half seasons now. And and I think you know on the balance of the performances at the moment, it'd be very very difficult to shift Rafinha. It'll be interesting to see if we do go back to five subs, which has been mooted as a change that's going to happen this week. I think we might see a little bit more of Hernandez then. Yeah, there's a Premier League meeting again today and this isn't going away. Um, I think the FA are, are very keen to see the Premier League do it as well. Um, so you would you would assume on that basis and, and given that everybody else seems to be doing it, it will come come around. So, I mean, I, I would always expect Hernandez to, to make the 18. And like you say, if there are five subs during the game, I, I think far more chance of, of him appearing. Although Bielsa doesn't tend to go wild with his substitutions. He, he tends to limit them unless... In, in Leads are in a bad way at the end of the first half, big on, on half-time subs. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's it's very possible that that will come later on this afternoon. Just a couple of details from the game itself. Would you have given a penalty for Newcastle? I think I would have done purely because that's what VAR is doing or should be doing. I'm one of those people who looks at it and thinks, mm, not sure that's... You know, in the, in, in the way that you used to look at challenges like that, I'm, I'm not really sure that is a penalty. But I think when you start comparing it to other things that have been given... By VAR, it, it. I think it should have been. Yeah, I, I think um, it was a, a foul on Wilson. But again, I mean, someone said to me last night, got lucky with VAR there. Well, maybe, but only in the way that Leeds got unlucky with VAR down at Palace with the the Bamford goal. And it does feel that although sometimes it helps teams, sometimes it hinders them. It's just a shambles, and it just needs to go. And and I think goal line technology is fine. The rest of it, I'm not sold on at all. And Basically, as I said previously, because it's still coming down to interpretation, regardless of the video replays, that is still going to somebody at Stockley Park who sits and looks at it and says, mm, no, I don't think so, or says, yeah, I think think that is a, a penalty, and it just isn't definitive, and it's not going to get any better. It needs to go. Well, something that has gone, Slavin Bilic, replaced by Sam Allardyce, which is an interesting move. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see Leeds getting into trouble this season, genuinely, so it probably isn't going to have an impact in, in that sense. I think if Leeds were struggling, you would say that's not great for them because you would you would guess that Allardyce will get things together there, partly because he's pretty good at that, and also because there's clearly going to be more support for him at West Brom than there was for Billich. What I don't understand with Billich is, A, why they have been so kind of sceptical about him, even though he, he took them up last season and, and took them up automatically. And B, why, if they clearly had lost a bit of faith, why they didn't get on and sack him in the summer and just say, look, we don't think he's he's for us going forward. We're going to get somebody else. It seems odd to wait until this point at which you're kind of in the mud and needing somebody to dig you out of it to switch things around. I, I suspect Allardyce will come very close to keeping them up and it might prove to to be a good decision. But I don't think if you followed West Brom, you would be going from Billich to Allardyce and, and feeling like all oh, your Christmases have come at once. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Another goal for Patrick Bamford last night against Newcastle brings his season tally to nine in 13 games, which would have been 10 if it hadn't been. If he'd shaved his armpits, he might have got that 10th goal that VAR ruled out. Uh, he did an interview on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, another one of the athletics podcasts. So we're going to bring you some of the best bits of that and our thoughts on Patrick Bamford, who is a changed man this year in that he's so much more clinical and well, he stepped up to the Premier League in fine fashion, really, hasn't he? What's happened to him? It feels a bit like he's been released by everybody having to back off and accept that actually he is a pretty high-quality centre-forward. He, he does score goals. Some of his finishing is really good. And and the, the criticism of him just doesn't stand up anymore. I mean, his strike rate is really quite something. It's, it's close to a goal from every two games, which is damn good, you know, at top level of the championship and then coming into the Premier League not for the first time, but I think for the first time as a as a first-choice player. And he seems very, very happy in his skin. I mean, I think he's always been happy in his skin under Bielsa because he's always had Bielsa's confidence and, and support and he's always understood the system and the structure of Leeds team very, very well. But it has to help that actually the public at large now are, are looking at him and saying he is a decent, decent Premier League forward. And even when the, you know, the links to the England squad were coming, it wasn't if, as if people were listening to that and saying, well, you you know, you have to be joking. Actually, he feels like a, a bit of a credible candidate for that because he, he's finishing as well as just about anybody else. And he's made this step up really well. I mean, he received criticism. We, we criticised him on the Square Ball podcast. And, uh, you know, I think, that, well, well, was it justified? I think it was because there were times when we needed a finish and he was missing chances that he should have put away that as we said, that that whole anxiety tied to Leeds getting promoted, it, he kind of became the lightning rod for that, didn't he, in many ways? I mean, he was missing chances and it felt a little bit last year as well. Like, even the ones he was scoring, he wasn't always hitting the ball cleanly or, and it was, or there were tappings from a yard away that somehow he managed to make look unconvincing that there's just had a, it just had a general vibe about him last year of not being completely confident in, in what he was doing. Whereas it feels like this year, he has completely managed to shed that. It's like being promoted as weight, taking the weight from his shoulders as well and all of a sudden he's just playing with a different a different swagger about him and he feels more like he he's playing like he deserves it now. I think that'll be true and it is different, totally different playing in the championship when everything is on promotion and every goal and every result is so crucial. It's not the case that they don't matter this season. It's just that, I've, you know, I've said many times, it's kind of intangible targets this season, isn't it? If Leeds finish 12th, would you be happy? If they finish 14th, would you be significantly unhappy? Does it make a, a huge difference given that this is a project and it is a, a kind of building process? If, if you look back last season, nobody else got into double figures. So it wasn't as if 
Banfield could miss chances, but goals were flying in from all sorts of areas, and it and it kind of got lost in the the general conversation. It wasn't like the seasons where you had Gradle banging them in and Becky banging them in, and some coming from Snodgrass and some coming from House, and the same sort of split just just wasn't there. So it was all on on Banfield's shoulders, and I think it didn't help that Nketia had the knack of sticking away pretty much anything he touched, and sometimes minutes or seconds after coming off the bench, that there was that inclination to say he's a goal scorer let's play him when in actual fact Bamford is it kind of epitomises the, the modern footballer and the way modern coaches think which is that scoring goals isn't enough you know it's not enough for a centre forward anymore there's got to be far more to it and, and actually with Bielsa scoring goals seem, I don't mean for the team but I mean individually it seems to come further down the list of things that he that he bothers about as opposed to doing the job as it should be done, fitting into the system as a centre-forward needs to to fit in, doing the, the specific responsibilities that Bielsa, Bielsa asks of them. And yes, you do need to score goals. And Bamford has said himself that there have been a couple of occasions where Bielsa has said to him, you know, you, you need to pick it up. You need to, to do better. But I think it comes back to the fact that he's got a head coach who really, really rates him, um, a head coach who understands what he does and, and why he's important. And, I, and you can just see his own self-confidence growing and growing. It definitely shines through in these clips that we've got from the Onstein and Chapman podcast in that not only has Bielsa believed in him, but he feels like he owes a lot to Marcelo Bielsa. He's really bought into Bielsa ball. And the first of these clips then it talks about the, the training and you know a lot of players wouldn't stand for this, this level of training and the amount of demands that Bielsa places on them. But Patrick Bamford seems to have really bought into this. Um, we had three gym sessions, then outside running. And then we had an hour-long meeting. Yeah, quite hectic. Three gym sessions? Yeah. We've got the game on Friday this week. Instead of having one gym session tomorrow and two today, we put all three today. They're not always an hour long. They can be 20 minutes. They can vary anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. I think the fact that we lost the game, um, normally after we've lost, uh, the breakdown is more intense, especially when there's things that we could have done to prevent it, which I think was the main emphasis of that meeting getting used to them long meetings was quite hard but now kind of because we are used to it it is full concentration and um we do we nitpick everything really the fact that our physical stats weren't bad but Chelsea really outperformed what they'd done the rest of the season in terms physically and then obviously you know about Chelsea's uh like how good they are I think that that's probably the best team we've played this year um so we were just breaking down really the faults that we made and how we could have possibly made it a, a different outcome or a slightly more even game. It's a world away from that perception that footballers rock in at nine o'clock, they train from 10 to 12 and then go home and have the afternoon off. I mean, like Bielsa demands so much from them. And I think Bamford very much symbolic of the whole squad in that, that they're into it. Well, remember the stories in the uh, the first summer of players who stayed over at a hotel near Thorpe Arch rather than going home because they were sometimes doing three sessions a day and they were finishing so late and coming back in so early that there didn't seem much point in driving. You know, if you're Liam, Liam Cooper and you you live in Hull, is there any point in driving an hour over there and an hour back when you can just hole up in a hotel and get a, a bit more rest? I think this this goes back to the way that everybody kind of invested in Bielsa when he, he first came in. And, and the point about this this discussion, I think, is is that if the players hadn't done and if they hadn't been sold on what Bielsa was asking them to do this would never have worked because they would have got tired very quickly of the long meetings of the you know the really intense training the motherball sessions and so on I thought when I when I wrote about motherball I thought it was really telling that the people who'd done it previously at other clubs all said 
I can't imagine any other coach doing this because no other coach would get players to accept it. Most players would look at coaches trying to do this. Um, and I expect this would even go for like Corbin over at, at Huddersfield if, if he wanted to, to kind of introduce mother ball there. And they would say, this is just too extreme. It's too hard. You know, it, it's not for us. But with Bielsa, everybody's gone with it. And it's easier to go with it when it works. The players have said that themselves. You know, the fact that they get results. And in Bamford's case, the fact that the goals are coming and he's played well and he's been, you know, Leeds, Leeds number nine really right the way through, certainly since um, Kamal Roof left. What's not to like? And however tiring it is and however exhausting it is, it, it's worth it because it's doing doing good things for you. And that, that really has been the, the story of the success at Leeds. You get a sense in these clips as well that, that Bamford is enjoying being challenged and he's a person who, who doesn't want to just exist in his comfort zone. He was really the first manager that properly gave me that chance. So I think probably subconsciously there's part of me that's always in debt to him so I'm willing to do anything I listen to everything he says yeah there's been times where I've probably not agreed with it and (laughs) but you don't you don't you don't answer back you take it on the chin and um, I think that with him there's that mutual respect because you know his understanding of the game is just so ridiculous that there's so many things that I can learn not just me that everyone in general is, is willing to learn from him as well and on about the Stuart James interview the the grandfather side of him, that won't come out until the job is done. He's yeah. very demanding, very demanding. And I think that's only a good thing because naturally, like people kind of sit in the comfort zone. When they get in a comfort zone, you kind of just stay still, you stagnate. So with him, he's always pushing you to the next level. And that's something I think I need. Um, it helps me and I'm, all, I'm eager to learn. But to have someone that just gives you that constant pushing, I think that definitely helps. I think that's one thing we can perhaps forget as football fans is that the footballers are always developing, they're always maturing and getting better. And we've certainly seen that with Bamford. I don't feel like I had as much faith in footballers being able to improve, certainly once they hit the mid-20s until Bielsa. It's quite easy to see a parallel universe where Bamford and Cooper and Dallas are still stuck in the championship for the rest of their careers and Click is in Holland, just because we decided after one game against Cardiff he wasn't good enough. Bielsa does make players better. I'm not sure all which we might come on to with the Man United game. I'm not sure all coaches can make players better, but I guess players will have seen what Bielsa has done with other people and therefore have the faith in him to do it. He does. He's changed perceptions of, of a lot of things. I think he's changed the way I and, and a lot of other people around Leeds think about transfers and the importance of transfers. I, I think the obsession of, with them and the idea that spending money and signing players is the answer to every problem is, has changed because of what he's done. And, there will be players who won't survive this in the Premier League. You know, not everybody can make the transition, but they've all done done well so far. And listening to Bamford, you, you just feel more and more that he's actually pretty misunderstood. There's been this image of him, this caricature of somebody who's laid back, which, you know, he, he, he is um, in, a, in a personal sense, but laid back in a way that, that means that he doesn't want it as much as, as anybody else. And that's probably what he's managed to demonstrate over the past 12 to 18 months is that it does matter to him in, in the same way as it does any other player. And actually, this has been a, a big feather in his cap and, and something he's he's hugely proud of. I mean, Michael was just joking off air there about, you know, Bielsa sort of saying to his players, go and bury the bodies for me, and, and they would. But it, it's kind of become like that. The trust and loyalty is is such that, yeah, if he was telling you to, to dump body bags in the sea, um, you probably would just go and do it. There's a real truth in there, I think, about Bamford's style, Phil, actually. You hit upon a good point. And it's something he's identified himself, actually. And it was interesting in this uh, this chat with Ornstein and Chapman to hear him acknowledge that maybe 
he's had to develop himself, particularly over the last six months in terms of his style and his aggression, because we know that he's been trying to learn from Erling Haaland, who is an absolute beast of a striker. The last three weeks, on no, maybe maybe two weeks ago, I had probably two or three videos sent every day of Erling Haaland, like 15-minute videos, <laughs> each one. And so, yeah, I had to watch them and just kind of see what I can pick out from him. So it's all like a process of trying to help me learn. But what did you pick out from him? Because you finished quite like Haaland at uh, Chelsea on Saturday. Yeah, to be honest, it was quite similar to some of his goals. I think that one of the things that maybe, even though I feel like I've grown a lot, is I can work on the explosiveness of my runs sometimes. I feel like looking back, when I do look back through the game, sometimes I'll make a run, but it's not with 100% determination or conviction. And ultimately, it doesn't lead to anything. So... I think that's something that it doesn't just happen overnight. Like there's things that Marcelo has worked with me on that they took six months to come to fruition. Things like that. They don't just, it's not just a click of a fingers and it changes. It's, it's something that to takes a period of time. So there's always things to be learned and uh, he's always sending you clips or pushing you to, to learn new things and kind of teach yourself. If there's one player I don't think I'd like to be told to emulate, it would be Haaland. I mean, he, he's just a, a, freak of nature in the um, the Ballon d'Or right that, that I did on him I was saying this is a guy who broke the five year old's world record for the long jump just like that with that famous 60 metre sprint he did in Dortmund's game back in February you know came close to matching the world record um, for, for 60 <laughs> metres and I think with Haaland he, he is kind of redefining the centre forward and I was comparing him to uh, Ivan Drago in, the, in Rocky form just because he looks a bit like him but also just saying, you know, when he gets going and, and he starts scoring goals and he just rattles off, you know, four away at Hertha Berlin or like three on his, his debut, it is a bit like that thing of if, if they die, they die. And, and that's just that's just the, the way it is. But the explosiveness of Haaland's running is what you notice, I think, most about his game. The, the way he gets in behind defences, he's very clever at doing it. So he reads the game well and he, he positions himself well. But that burst of pace, I mean, there was one goal against Hertha Berlin where... It's an error from one of the players who's playing on the left-hand side, lets it slip by his foot. But Haaland starts about 10 yards behind him. And within about two seconds of the ball going past the defender, he's onto it and, and he's away and it's so quick. I think if, certainly in modern era, being able to play like that and being able to sprint like that, it's like Usain Bolt in football boots. The difference being that Usain Bolt did try and play football and was, was fairly hopeless. Haaland seems to be outstanding at both. And I, I kind of feel like with Haaland, he's probably the sort of player who, who is going to define football in the, the era after Messi and Ronaldo when it's been all on them. You know, he is somebody who, who has the potential to be absolutely sensational. So it's a tough ask replicating that. But I think it's interesting to hear that Bamford is, is looking to copy some of that because I think that probably is the thing that could develop in his game. You know, slightly more powerful running, slightly more explosive reactions in the box and, and when he's trying to get, get in behind. But as I say, it's a... It's a very, very tough ask. But I picked up on the running last night during one point, actually, when he, he was kind of, he had managed to isolate a defender and I feel like last season he would have held it up and waited for other people, whereas yesterday he just thought, no, do you know what, probably faster than him. And just he, he ended up taking it a bit wide on the left. But the, the intent was there from him and I think that is something new from him. And also the, the goal down at Chelsea, David Onstein was right. You know, that was kind of Haaland-esque, that just busting in behind, one chance to shoot, position it perfectly, bury it left-footed because Haaland is, is very left-sided and and again I guess when you move up divisions and, and if you want to improve you have to find ways to improve and 
you don't just improve because you do, you, you improve by properly focusing on the things that, that you can get better at. And it interests me that when he said, because we, we asked Bielsa about Haaland and, you know, why he'd been passing on these videos or getting his staff to pass these videos to Bamford. And he said, oh, no, it, it was because Patrick said to me, I would like you to pick out strikers that I should try and copy or strikers that I can learn from. And Bielsa's response was to say, well, what about Haaland? Because quite honestly, you know, with the exception of guys like Lewandowski and so on, in terms of the newer breed and the newer crop, who who is better out there than him? I've got to say, I'm intrigued to know if any of us could beat the uh, the five-year-old record for long jump even now. It's about 1 metre 64, something like that. I was thinking no, about... Then. For fi- I, is that for five-year-olds? I think so. I was thinking about that the other day, and even though it was a five-year-old record, I had to sit and decide whether it actually... Decide in my head what 1 metre 64 looked like and whether I could, could jump that. I think it, just it's, about, it's the length not, of a of a of an average adult human. I think that isn't it. I reckon that's about as far as I could go. We'll try it in the car park afterwards. Need a cat pull. Right. Explain that one to your wife when you get home. Could you just lay there? I'm going to tr- attempt to jump you like a, a motorbike jumping over some double decker buses, and if hopefully, I, hopefully not land on your head. If I if I land on your head, apologies in advance. Yes, uh, it's interesting to hear Bamford's clearly developing and continuing to develop as a player, and I think when you hear him talk about that and how he's responded to the criticism over the last couple of years, that he's also developing on a personal level too. Through football, from the very start, you kind of do develop a thick skin, um, whether it's coming up through the academy and there's the kind of prospect of getting released at a young age. You have that toughness to that, but then, as you said, it's heightened with social media and as you become more in in the eye, of the public, I try and ignore it as much as I can. But yeah, I did. I did reply to that talk sport tweet because I thought, just shut up. You haven't even seen me. Give me a chance. I, I didn't really have a shot last time, so I try and ignore it. I, I have a sports psychologist, but that's not really for that kind of thing. That's just general gameplay and, and things like that. But I've had him for years. It's one of them things where I think you, you've got to learn to to deal with it. At the end of the season, if I end up with a lot of goals and Leeds finish in a good position there's still going to be someone out there who says something bad about me. It's, there's still going to be something that I can't do or something that I'm not very good at. So ultimately, there's going to be loads of opinions flying about. And I think it does take a bit of experience to kind of get used to it because there were times where it did used to piss me off. But now you've just got to accept that, that people are going to say what they want to say. You've only really got to listen to the people who are close to you, their opinions that count at the end of the day. Interesting to hear that about the sports psychologists, that he's, he's- clearly trying to develop and continue to develop as both an individual and as a player. I would direct people to an article that my colleague Greg Evans did earlier this week, and which was about Amar El Ghazi at Aston Villa and the fact that El Ghazi had decided to come off Twitter because of the abuse that he was getting on there. And it's not as if that's unique or, or, or hasn't happened in the past. But what, what Greg did was to track down people who had sent messages to him, you know, people who had sent him abuse. So to actually go to the fans and say, look, given that Al Ghazi decided he had to come off social media, how do you feel now about some of, of what you what you said? And one of them, a guy called Dave, who, who lives in Redditch, he was saying, well, it's not great, is it? You know, I can understand why people say it's wrong. And he touched on something which is absolutely spot on here, which he says that people don't really think about it online because as he, he says, it's it's basically a venting exercise, Twitter Facebook, Instagram, other other accounts like that. That, that. That's what it encourages you you to do. And and it does go over the top. And, you know, as, as much as this guy Dave says, basically, if you're going to be a professional footballer, you've got to be prepared to get criticism. That is true. And that's always been true and always will be true. 
But then you look back through some of Dave's messages, which I honestly can't repeat on here. And that's not criticism. That's just outright abuse. And that's been the problem for, for a while now is that it, it isn't constructive criticism. It isn't even sort of slightly over the top criticism. It's just insults. And there's a massive difference between trying to pick apart what a player is doing and basically coming at them to criticise them them personally. And Bamford's had a, a fair amount of that, I think, over the years. Quite a few players at, at Leeds have it. It can't be easy. It, it can't be nice. It must weigh on your mind. And, and I think the fact that he's saying that he, he tries not to look at too much of it is sensible. And I, I suspect that a lot of footballers feel the same these days. I don't really look at it. If I'm searching for a, like a goal or a certain incident, then yeah, I'll type it in. Yeah. I actually saw something funny. <laughs> I'd say I don't look at it. I saw it after the Chelsea game. <laughs> About where I went into a tussle with Reese James. People were obviously like making jokes out of that, but generally, I don't look at it straight after the game. Like a season or two ago, yeah, I did. When I think you find when you're going through a tough spell, you tend to try and start looking a little bit to see what they're saying, but kind of managed to cap that off um, about a season and a bit ago, I say. So it turns out that footballers are human too, but not journalists. You should definitely pile into the likes of Phil Hay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, we're we're fair game, and and I I always kind of feel that because because we do criticise people and because we do kind of draw conclusions and and analyse analyse what we see, then then absolutely people should do the the same to us. And I think it is true to say that there is going to be criticism of, of footballers, and you don't you don't get a free pass in the game. I mean, I don't think Bielsa gets a free pass this season just because of what's gone on in in the past two years. He'll, he'll get a huge amount of support from the club and it, it's still going extremely well. But you don't, you know, as I think Chris Wilder's going to find, it's very difficult to do a fantastic job and then sit on one point for a long period of time and, and not expect people to, to get stuck in. It's just all about the tone of it and it's all about the, the content of it. And, you know, it's, it's all about the fact that so often it's like exponential on on, um, on Twitter. It builds and it builds and it builds and it becomes a game of who can who can become most extreme on it and it it must it must be very difficult for players who are used to getting you know find themselves being spoken about and written about every single day i i always think i would find that extremely hard which is kind of irony given that, that that's what i do but it it wouldn't be a part of the job that appeals to me no i would tend to agree with that if you want to catch up with the full patrick bamford interview search for the onstein and chapman podcast in the same place that you got this one Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hot off the press then, we are staying in tier three, we gather from the government's latest uh, release, Phil, which means no fans back in Ellen Road for the foreseeable anyway. It was sounding a little bit like earlier this week or back end of last week that the government were, were intimating that, that Leeds, certainly the city, might switch into tier two. And, and if that had happened, I think Leeds, the club, would have mobilised very quickly to try and get 2,000 in for the Burnley game on the 27th. But clearly that isn't going to happen now and it again becomes difficult to predict when it might, given that everybody seems to be thinking there'll be more severe lockdowns in January and, and beyond. So frustrating for them because they would love to get people back into the stadium uh, and you've seen it happen elsewhere, like at Liverpool last night and, and down in London before they hit Tier 3. But for now, it's as you were. 
bit of a shame. It, it feels like this season's basically a write-off, doesn't it now? I'm glad it's found Frank Lampard. I think that's probably the main thing that we need to cover. But it always felt like it was probably going to head this way. It felt like with rates going up in London, it felt like they were probably just going to say, actually, now it's everyone because it's us. So you can all suffer with us. I don't know. I've said before, I wasn't ever too fussed about going back to Allen Road and sitting there with another 2,000 people because it just looked kind of sterile and Johnston's paint trophy-ish, which, which means I'm happy to wait. If it helps infections, I personally don't mind. I know that's not the opinion of everyone, though. We're lucky, aren't we? Because we're able to enjoy this season because it's been promotion and it's new and, and you're seeing Bielsa's team develop. The league as a whole, it feels a little bit like a holding pattern at the moment. It feels as if clubs are managing their way through it and almost as if everybody's working to next summer when we can have a massive reset and, and go for gold. I'm not saying the title won't matter this season, but I have a feeling that it's just going to be one of those that people will look back on and say, yeah, it was a weird season that though, wasn't it? It was a, it was a weird year. Um, you've got Liverpool's injuries, you've got City who aren't quite firing. It's all, it's all rather odd and the absence of crowds is not helping. Do you think it'll have much of a bearing on things on Sunday as we go to Old Trafford? Because it would have been absolutely bouncing with Old Trafford for a, for a Man United Leeds fixture. Will it play into our hands or theirs? Um, I don't know really because if if I was that Manchester United team at the moment, I don't know how much help I'd be expecting from the terraces given that it's Solskjaer and it, it's Manchester United as they are under him and not, none of it's particularly inspiring and all of it feels like the Emperor's new clothes and, and you know, hanging on really until the point at which somebody says, look, this just isn't working. Let, let's go in a, a different different direction. I mean, you tell me, I, this seems to me to be, for Leeds anyway, the game above all others, that if you could have had a full house at, at any this season, either Leeds at Old Trafford or probably more particularly um, Manchester United at, at Ellen Road, you would want it to support us in and this is that you miss it every week but I think on this weekend in particular you'll feel as if the the resumption of this rivalry isn't going to be able to get going properly because there's no one well, virtually nobody there to see it the evidence so far seems to suggest that the lack of crowds is benefiting away teams rather than home teams so you would on the balance of probabilities hope that it benefits us on Sunday and that you don't have that crowd baying you don't therefore have them driving man united on it, it starts from that sterile point of view where we kick off and it's all to play for. You wonder how much it affects referees as well, not having anyone screaming at them, well, apart from the players. I was writing about this uh, the sort of atmosphere around this game for the square ball and just saying how it does feel like knowing there's not going to be a crowd in there. And I guess it makes a difference as well. People not maybe going to work in the same way and not having that same interaction with people. Because part of the build-up to this game was the, uh, growing up was always that you'd go into school and there'd be Man United fans there and you'd go at the game and there was just so much stress and anticipation around it which doesn't it does just doesn't feel like it's there for me no, this time around I don't no. know about for you Dan the stress of trying to get tickets as well because you know the, the allocation at Old Trafford given the size of the ground is not huge it was massive for that FA Cup tie in 2010 because the rules changed for the, the FA Cup you've got to give a much bigger percentage of the of the capacity but it's that little corner isn't it so you would have had people hanging on desperately hoping that they were going to have enough loyalty points or however else it works to, to get the foot in the door at Old Trafford and you don't have that same build up you don't have the preparation people will sit and watch it on on the telly but it's just not the same I feel like there's a slight difference as well with this Man United team that there's no trace of the old Man United about it when when we played them in the cup there was still Ferguson there there was still Giggs there was Neville there were players that we remembered hating before this is a completely new crop and as much as I can be slightly annoyed watching Fernandez diving around it doesn't have that it's not personally happened to Leeds yet so I've not got that grudge in place and Rashford seems like a very nice boy so I mean how can you possibly hate him 
Yeah, no, I tend to agree with that. I mean, when it comes to this Man United side, some talented players, but the theme we touched on in the Square Ball podcast is that if you get fair wins when you play Man United, they can be got at. Yeah, there's a big read coming because there's always a big read coming, isn't there? But at the weekend, I've done a piece with Laurie Whitwell, a Man United guy on the rivalry, you know, spoken to a lot of supporters, people who were were involved over the years. And one of the people I was in touch with was Alan Sutton, who was um, physio at Leeds for years, but um, particularly in the the Wilkinson era, you know, when, when Leeds last won the title. And he was talking, you mentioned, you know, players of the past he was talking about a game I think it was 2002 where he was in the tunnel beforehand and the players lined up and there was that you know there's a bit of noise but then there's that kind of nervous quietness or the, the that moment of focus when everybody's getting ready he said he was standing there and Roy Keane was obviously captain in Man United and was at the front front of their line and Alan said that it was always different at Ellen Road it was always a bit more poisonous and a bit more aggressive because it was a smaller ground it was more raw it wasn't as corporate as Old Trafford it was a, it was kind of different on, on this side of the Pennines and he said he was standing there nothing being said and then suddenly Keane turned around to um, Sylvester who was doing nothing you know he was just standing there waiting to go on the pitch and said to him you you better be switched on today and then pointed at somebody else and said you need to concentrate properly because he said Keane kind of knew the score with a game like that he knew what was coming at Ellen Road and you, you don't sense with this Man United team, it's not that they don't have talent in there because they definitely do, but you don't sense that same underlying edge. And I mean, I guess there's anybody of Roy Keane's edge, but like, you know, that same underlying insanity to go with it all, where you, you kind of, you're kind of ready for the war, aren't you? I know what you mean. It's the, it's those kind of the ultra winners. The Yeah. Because Man United's team or the culture that grew up with it, as much as you disliked them, they had that. And, and as much as it galled you to see them, like in, against Sheffield Wednesday, what you know, 17, 20 years ago, whatever it was, playing until Man United scored in the 100th minute of injury time or something. They always had that ability to pull that out of the bag, didn't they? That that desire to win, that real um, bodies-on-the-line passion. But you don't get that sense with this side anymore. That it's, it's, it's a bit more generic, isn't it? I'm not sure bodies-on-the-line passion exists in the same way no. generally anymore. Even if you pick through the best sides in Europe, they don't, really win games and trophies because of that like Bayern Munich for example who are probably top of the tree at, at the moment just have class all the way over the pitch and, and they win games because they're, they're too good um, I mean it, it feels to me when you know whenever I see Solskjaer's Man United it feels like it's all on Fernandes you know when, when he when he plays well and when he makes them tick and when he scores goals and when they get penalties they're fine but you, you take that away and the there just doesn't seem to be much aura there. There doesn't seem to be much threat. And and they could easily win Sunday and they could easily win comfortably because th- there is the ability for them just to, to click like that. But I don't know how much Solskjaer will be fancy in this game. It's certainly a tough one for them. It's going to be a tough one for us. It's going to be fascinating, actually. Do you think they, um, they've looked a little bit unfit at times this season? I and, mean, you know, we say this through the, the prism of having watched Leeds United as, as the side that, you know, runs themselves with five men in attack against Newcastle when they're, they're three, four, two up, you know, in the 90th, 90th minute or whatever. To ask it another way, how much weight would Luke Shaw have to lose to get in a Bielsa team? <laughs> yeah, uh, a little bit like that story of Luke Ayling. It's like you shed this amount of weight and you're left thinking, what? Um, I can't answer that because it's very difficult without watching them regularly and watching them every week to, to draw a, a sort of fair conclusion on on the fitness levels which kind of leads us quite nicely into what Tim Sherwood was saying before the, the Newcastle game last night which was Leeds have blown a gasket they're supposed to be the fittest team in the league implying that the you know the whole burnout theory that 
follows Bielsa around was was there to be discussed again. Whereas I think those of us who watched the the West Ham game and had watched other games round about, I'd, I'd never felt that fitness was was coming into it. The Leeds were flat in that game; they were a bit blunt. It it didn't work, but you didn't sense players were blowing. You know, it, it wasn't wasn't like that at all. And so it it would be wrong on that basis to to sit and say, yeah, I think fitness levels at, at Old Trafford aren't aren't great. I think it's more a culture thing over there at the moment. I, I don't look at the players and, and think that they're enjoying being part of that at all. I don't get the, the tone from the fan base doesn't give me the impression that many people are sold on Solskjaer. I think there are people over there who are trying to support him because of who he is and, and what he's done. But I, I think if you put a gun to people's heads and said, look, is this going to work? Most people would surely say, no, it's not. It's that great paradox, isn't it, with them? They have got those talented players. And like you look at Pogba, this entirely loveless relationship that he's in with Man United, you know, and you've heard from his agent in the last couple of weeks saying he will be leaving. Sell him as soon as you can. Otherwise, you will get stitched up for the money for a second time, which I think is hilarious. But I think this is what comes of buying players rather than trying to to create a team. So if we take Liverpool as an example, you know, the deal they did right at the end of the window was Jota from Wolves and there's no real it was expensive but there's no real fanfare with that you know Jota there's nothing really showbiz about him he's got bundles of quality I always loved him in the the championship I thought he was miles above the the standard that he was playing at in that 17-18 season with Wolves but it's just been massively effective for them because it was done for the right reasons it's not that Pogba isn't a, a quality player but it was almost as if Breaking the transfer record and getting him, of all people, was more important than the question of does he fit. And, it was and a political signing, wasn't it? it? It feels a bit like it, which is an unfair thing to say about him because he is actually massively talented and, and there's a lot about his game if you use him and play him in, in the right way, which is is impressive. And and whatever you think of him, if you go back to the World Cup and, and the way he played for, for France, he clearly is right up there in, in the sort of elite bracket of, of footballers. But... It isn't working there, and given what's being said, you you feel that it's inevitable that he will be gone if somebody will take him in the next six to nine months. But I think that's where where they've gone wrong. And and we talk over this side of the Pennines about the fact that Bielsa likes to work with what he's got. He likes to improve players. He if, if he if there are injuries, he you know we asked him about centre back after he lost Koch and um, and Urente, which seemed like a very reasonable question. And I think it was a reasonable question, and he said, well. I've got Ailing, I've got Phillips, I've got kids in the academy. You know, we can basically just mix it around, muddle, muddle through, and I think they're all good enough anyway. So on we go. Whereas when you go over and listen to the narrative around Solskjaer and Manchester United, it's always about the transfer market. I mean, it is about Solskjaer too, and it's about his ability as a coach. And I, I don't really understand still what he's doing in in that job. But it's always about what they're spending and who they need to recruit and how many transfer windows yeah. they need. He needs backing, he needs backing, he needs Const- time. Yeah. Constantly. But you go through that side and you think, okay, it's maybe not up there with Liverpool and it's not necessarily up there with City either, but that team could be better. It should be, shouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's, so. There's so much investment there. That's the thing. It's saying, oh, they need to buy another centre-back. Well, the, in addition to Maguire, who was 80 million, Lindelof, who was about, 30, I think. Wambasaka at fullback. Wambasaka, Luke Shaw was about 30 million as well. They've got Eric Bay, I think, that was, was he about 30 million as well. Well, actually, well I mean, to, to return to a point that Phil made earlier, you look at the value we've extracted already from Rafinha at 17 million and you contrast it with them. And it, it feels like 
there's a, a price for a player and then there's a Man United price for a player because they've always traditionally chucked money around and can be had and in they a make, deal. And they make them worse. That's the point. Maguire was a, a well-rated yeah. centre-back at Leicester. He was good for England. Now Absolutely. you look at him and he, occasionally he's, he's gone a bit Phil Jones in the way that he's becoming a little bit of a joke at times. And, and is that because he was a complete waste of money at £80 million? I think he was overpriced at that, but only because that's the way the domestic market goes. Or is he being completely crushed by being at a club like that who are just kind of stagnating and, and not really going anywhere but have this huge amount of attention on them and, and this attitude that they should still be winning things and they should still be competing for the, the major trophies which at, at the moment they just don't seem to, to be able to. I mean, is the equivalent, for example, of signing a striker to replace Bamford, finding that the striker's not performing and saying, right, okay, get somebody else and it just becomes this endless cycle of turnover and wasted money an expenditure, and at some point, it's you, good, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, like, I'm enjoying it. I don't sense, I don't sense a lot of um, upset uh, round here about that at all, and, and nor should there be. But there comes a point, doesn't there, at which you have to make the best of of what you've got, and that is Bielsa's core skill: is taking what he's got, making the best of it, and not wasting time saying I haven't been backed and I don't have the players I, I need. I mean. You know, it's a fact that he resigned at Lazio because the transfers were not coming in. He quit after two days there on on that basis. But I think that's different. You're inheriting a team and you're thinking, right, OK, let's add to it, let's do this. And he'd had promises from the board at Lazio that they were going to bring people in and they didn't and there didn't seem to be any progress being made. But I, I, I mean, I think we were all surprised when he first came in at, at the, you know, the faith he had in a squad that most of us thought at Leeds was, was a mid-table team, a mid-table squad transformed them completely and I do think I've said this many times but I do think it's a lesson for a lot of coaches out there To return to the point we made at the start of this section then about being able to get at Man United put this one to you see if you agree that I think if Man United are not on it physically in that they don't compete and they don't run as hard as we do that's when we can get at them we can cause them problems we have to be wary of their individual talents because despite all the stuff we've just said for the last 15 minutes they have a lot of good players who can do a lot of good things on their day and that's kind of that, that to me feels like the crux of this one. Yeah, well, just to go back to the Sherwood point as well, and and saying you know talking about Leeds blowing a gasket, I think on the contrary, what's happening is that Leeds are finding that other teams are raising the physical output. So Bielsa talked about it happening against Chelsea, but also West Ham as a team ran further against Leeds than they had in any other previous game. So it is kind of bringing that out of teams, and, and we might see the same with Manchester United as well. I think you're right; the individual talent is where they can definitely hurt you, and also limit your challenges in the box because it has to be said that when it comes to penalty decisions it does seem to lean in their direction an awful lot of the time at Old Trafford never I will never hear of that and, min- and minus a crowd as well well one final job for you then Phil and that's to pick a one to watch this is um, something we do every week where we ask you to pick a thing that's a player a battle or an issue that will be a key feature of the upcoming game your record in this predictably hit and miss mm. what or who is it going to be at Old Trafford I did Phillips Rice um, on Friday because obviously there's the competition for the England place at the Euros there, um, and and it was was pretty pretty interested in in that matchup. I think it has to be Phillips again, and and if um, Solskjaer goes with a three in behind, say Martial up front, then Phillips on Fernandez is going to be absolutely crucial. And if Phillips wins that, I think the game is is there to be won. If Fernandez gets the better of him, then the chances are it could be quite a, a difficult Sunday afternoon. But yeah, depending on which way that goes, I think it'll influence a lot. Michael, you got far too optimistic in the run-up to some of our recent games and started doing wild things like predicting Leeds wins. Um, versus Newcastle, you 
uh, flipped that script and said Leeds would lose, which meant we actually won in real life. Uh, what do you fancy for this one? I feel like having basically trashed Man United for 10 minutes and said what a shambles they are and how they've got no structure, they're probably going to beat us 4 0. Phil, what do you reckon? I'm swaying towards a home win. I do think they might, they might just edge this. But again, you never can tell, can you? It, you'd like to think that at stages of the match, it'll open up, which will give Leeds a, Leeds a good chance. But it's it despite everything and despite the way they are, it's going to take a big performance over there. All right, well, heart says away win. Head says we'll settle for a one-all draw. Fair enough. And we are in that final run-up to Christmas. Merry Christmas to you if you're going to be celebrating across the uh, the coming days and weeks. We've got another show ahead of Christmas as well where we'll do the proper festive stuff then. In the meantime, if you want to get somebody a gift for Christmas, you can subscribe to The Athletic yourself and get another subscription as a gift for free. The perfect present for somebody else, the football fan in your life. And if they're not a football fan, make them a Leeds fan. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod and we'll speak to you next week bye bye the phil hay show